The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the uh, leading programs that we had early on in in our broadcast history was a discussion and um, sort of a general overview of some of the major archaeological sites in North America. And of course, one of the central sites and one of the more well-documented archaeological sites, especially for the Midwestern region, is the site of Cahokia, which was probably the largest village in central North America at at, uh, during prehistoric times. Cahokia was known as a very major urban center and sort of represented the ultimate development of prehistoric cultures, especially through the later periods uh, in the Midwestern United States. And there are always and always have been a great number and significant number of archaeological sites associated with the general Cahokia area. It was one of the places uh, wherein um, complex societies were sort of taken as a as a major feature of uh, Midwestern archaeology based on the size of Cahokia and the various interpretations that were generated uh, from that site. So there are always new developments. Um, there is a actually a very, very s- strong infrastructure for doing the work at that site. And uh, there have been also a lot of very recent and important discoveries at Cahokia in the past uh, five years, and we are going to talk about those today. My guests are uh, Dr. Tom Emerson, who is uh, the director of the Illinois State Archaeological Survey, which is one of the larger archaeological state organizations in the United States. He uh, is responsible for directing the program um, for undertaking public awareness and public outreach programs as well as undertaking the science. 
and has been on the Cahokia scene for a very, very long time and has a very distinguished career in uh, the mid Midwestern archaeology. My other guests are also associated with the program, and they are uh, Dr. Kristen Hedman, who is the Associate Director for the Program on Ancient Technologies and Archaeological Materials. She is a physical anthropologist. And my third guest is Ms. Eve Hargrave, who is a skeletal analyst working on the project as well. I should introduce this by saying that one of the more exciting um, discoveries over the past year or so has been the very famous excavation at Mount 72. And uh, I think that's something that most of you will be very interested in. I know that I am because it was the first excavation I was ever on in 1971. So I would like to begin by introducing Tom Emerson. And Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about the organization of the Illinois Survey and uh, bring us into focus on the Mount 72 excavations by means of more general work at Cahokia? Sure. The... Uh, State Archaeological Survey is actually a new organization, probably formed in the last three or four years, but it's really a continuation of an ongoing program in Illinois since the 1950s. And we are centrally based at uh, Urbana-Champaign in, at the University of Illinois. And we have seven field stations around the state. Well, most of our work is actually tied to the undertaking of archaeology in advance of construction projects, and we work primarily for the Department of Transportation. But we also have a very active research uh, arm, and Dr. Hedman really is in charge of that part of the program. And one of the things that the program has allowed us to do is do really long-term research. So we've been working on, for instance, the Cahokia projects for probably 20 or 30 years. Um, that's allowed us to really develop an unusual uh, amount of expertise in that field. And lately, the, um, the program was involved in both a research breakthrough and some new excavations that have really changed our idea about what's going on in this area. Uh, Dr. Children mentioned earlier, in effect, that Cahokia is a site that, in effect, is in the middle of a large cluster of sites that are all related. So, in fact, Cahokia, that you often think of, uh, may see pictures of the state park, is actually only one of three major mound complexes. And Cahokia has somewhere around 120 mounds. Uh, East St. Louis site that's immediately adjacent, has about 50. And actually, the St. Louis Mound Group across the river had 26. And so you have to start thinking about this Cahokia as kind of a metropolitan area. And it's really hard to visualize because just the scale is so large and so much of it's developed, it's a hard idea to get through to people. But prehistorically, these major sites were all linked. And then they, in effect, were linked to another 14 mound centers that surrounded um, this central Cahokian precinct. Well, a lot, of the, a lot of the area around Cahokia has really been heavily developed. So, for instance, the site of East St. Louis, which is, again, right next to Cahokia, literally by the late 1800s, those 50 mounds had been leveled. 
most of the site was buried under a massive amount of uh, urban rubble, and people thought it was destroyed. So that part of the new information came about when they decided to build a new Mississippi River Bridge. And that new bridge actually came down to a land in Illinois in East St. Louis. And while doing the work there, we realized that what had happened is when the historic leveling of this big mound center occurred, they really actually turned around and buried the actual village areas of the site. So we dug um, basically about a strip about a half a kilometer long, um, and in that area we discovered around 1,300 buildings that actually date to the period between about 900 and 1200 A.D. This is the first time anyone has really gotten a big look at what one of these towns was like. So if you think about that kind of density, and then you think that what we dug was 4% of this site, that that begins to really, for the first time, I think, hammer home this idea that, you know, we're talking about urbanism in North America. Cahokia is a city, and it's totally different from every other phenomena in Native culture in North America, um, right up to historic times. And so that's been a real kind of eye-opener. People have suggested it, but in effect, we didn't really have the hard evidence. But, you know, it's hard to extrapolate from mounds to people. But having dug a large section of residential area, you really begin to understand that these people are living in a city-like environment. So all of that has been going on, and we're, in effect, writing and analyzing that material right now. We've got several million artifacts came out of the ground. So it's a multi-year project to really get a handle on what this is going to tell us about Cahokian life. But some of the things that we can see, for instance, right now is this city is made up of neighborhoods. We can recognize distinct neighborhoods. We've been able to find craft areas, almost workshops, where, in effect, people were were working exotic materials that were brought in from places as far away as Oklahoma, the Gulf Coast, up into Wisconsin. And they were in these special neighborhoods. People were turning these into items that were had religious and political value. We've never been able to actually see that before at Cahokia. So again, with just to give you that kind of a general perception of how we're really changing that part of Cahokia, let's go back to the Mound 72 issue. So here was a, an excavation carried out in the 1970s that really was was another it was a matter of like serendipity. Melvin Fowler did the excavations, and um, you know Joseph said he w- he was there. And I may I may even have seen him since I was down there window shopping and, and overlooking that uh, project <laughs> a few times. But right. um, the you know Melvin Fowler dug that mound because he was looking for a series of great posts that he thought had been set up around Cahokia to help align the site. And so Mount 72 is fairly small. It's inconspicuous. 
you know, no one suspected when they began that excavation what they were going to find, and that's the site now that's, it's almost kind of the, the postcard from Cahokia. Um, you know, when you, when you, people talk about Cahokia, they talk about Mound 72 because they found a multiple number of large burial pits in which it appeared very much that primarily young women, but some young men had actually been sacrificed and their bodies carefully stacked up like cordwood in these large pits. And then in another part of this, of that mound, there was a very elaborate burial. Um, it looked like two males laid out, in, in effect, on this shell-beaded blanket that looked like the shape of a bird. So for the last probably 15 years, um, the three of us have actually been working on you know, understanding prehistoric diet. So we got back to Mound 72, again, kind of scientific serendipity here. We, we got back to 72 because it's a large population of individuals, and we thought, well, this would be a good place to collect information on diet. So why don't we go back and look at these people? And so we began that work. And... As part of it, Chris and Eve both, in effect, um, check out all the issues on burials in terms of age, sex, um, all the you know, pathologies, basically get an understanding of the individual that we're getting this sample from. Well, in that process, um, and I should say another colleague at the Illinois State Museum, Don Cobb, was involved in that. In that process... I can't remember whether it was Dawn or who it was first, but essentially some one of them kind of alerted us to, you know, the two men in this burial, you know, aren't men. It's like something's going on here. And so each of them independently checked the identification of the two skeletons, and that's when we came to realize it's actually a woman and a man. And not only that, that the burial also included the bodies of other people, another couple, a man and a female. And I think in this one also was a small child. And so from my standpoint as an archaeologist interested in symbolism and religion and power structures and politics in the past, you know, I looked at this and went, wow, this is a total revision of what we think Cahokia was all about, because that beaded burial had been promoted as a classic example of a warrior motif, um, kind of male-dominated society, uh, basically the classic kind of patriarchal system in place. And um, that you, you have to reach, you know, seriously change your thinking when you suddenly realize, well, those two guys aren't guys. Um, and uh-huh. what this means right. now is, in fact, you've got males and females involved in this. I still think it's, it's a very important burial. It probably has to do with high status. But the status, instead of being gender-focused, is actually probably focused on class. These, the individuals, the males and the females in this beaded burial represent, in effect, people who are part of some elite upper class at Cahokia. 
and that that really kind of refocuses our thinking about the the whole program there. Okay, we are going, we're going to have to take a quick break over here and then we'll move on and get into some more details about what our paleoanthropologists and bioanthropologists are feeling about the most recent developments and maybe giving us a little interpretive history of how these uh, perspectives on the burials have changed. We'll be right back. Don't go away. We'll be right back with this uh, very fascinating story of the bioarchaeology of Cahokia, the uh, major site in the uh, American Midwest. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Thank you. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Cahokia was one of the central and probably the largest uh, urban center in North America uh, during the prehistoric period. And my guests today are Tom Emerson, Kristen Hedman, and Eve Hargrave, all of whom are involved in very, very long-term research at that site. Uh, Tom gave us a very uh, probing and historical perspective on what Cahokia was, its significant in its significance in North American prehistory, and we're now entering into a discussion of the famous burials at Mound 72, what they signify, and what they can tell us both about the physical conditions uh, that humans were under. 
at the time of the site's occupation, as well as some of the more anthropological and social organizational elements of looking at these burials in, in perspective. Kristen, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, the burials themselves and what you're able to reconstruct in terms of diet and pathology? Sure. Um, when we look at a skeletal population, whether it's Mount 72 or any other site, um, what we start out with is, first of all, trying to figure out how many individuals are represented. And we do that by, by inventorying the elements present, identifying um, redundant elements so that we can determine the minimum number of individuals. The next step in that is estimating age and sex for each of those people. And, uh, you know, that gives us a, a, an idea of uh, differential burial practices within a culture um, where all people treated the same after death, where some people treated differently. Um, we also look at the skeletal and dental remains for evidence of disease, um, infections, or traumatic injuries. We look for dental caries evidence for arrested growth, that type of thing that gives us of some sense of community health and individual health. We're always trying to bring it down to the level of the individual um, in our interpretations and then extending that back out into what that tells us about the population as a whole. And, and uh, mm -hmm. I'm sorry? Go ahead. No, go ahead, please. So when we, uh, this project came started with a look at Cahokia more generally. As, as Tom was mentioning, we were looking for health. We were looking for isotopic evidence of um, people coming from someplace else, so, so evidence from the people that reflected what we were seeing in the archaeology and the material culture. And so our initial analysis with Cahokia was focusing on the isotopes of some of these outlying cemeteries in different mounds. We had uh, very very little emphasis on Mount 72, but on several of the other mounds within Cahokia itself and some of the cemetery sites. And uh, this is where we, we use strontium isotopes, which gives you information on where an individual came from, uh, if they, they reflect the local geology uh, and the overlying sediments, and so uh, if there are differences in the age and composition of the geology, then the strontium isotopes will differ um, in the food and the people that lived in that area. And in looking at strontium, we identified that a third of the people at Cahokia were not local to that region. So uh, that was very interesting. We suspected that there were a number of immigrants within Cahokia, but to actually find evidence of who those were to see those particular individuals, um, that was new information. So we took that when we went to analyze Cahokia, uh, Mount 72, to see if we saw that same sort of pattern, where there are a lot of immigrants reflected within Mount 72. Mm -hmm. um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about, what just, I just so that mm -hmm. most of our audience can follow along, tell us exactly what the strontium uh, is useful for as a signature and as a differentiating feature of how you can sort people into geographic locations. I think it's it's an interesting topic that most people don't have any clue about. Okay, sure. 
Um, strontium is an isotope that occurs naturally in the environment. It occurs in different isotopes. And what we're looking at is the ratio of the isotopes of strontium-87 and strontium-86. And as I said, that, that, uh, what that ratio is depends on the age and the composition of the bedrock and the overlying sediment. Uh, so, very simplistically, uh, if you have older ge- geologic features, you're going to have a higher strontium ratio. If you have younger uh, features, it's going to be lower. And so, if, uh, if you have individuals from some place that differs significantly geologically, their strontium isotope ratios will be different. Mm-hmm. And the, I'm sorry, I'm not being very coherent with this. Uh, the tissues that we use, we use teeth. And the, with tooth enamel, the strontium isotope ratios are incorporated in the foods and waters that are consumed. And so as that tooth develops, so you think of, uh, you know, your baby teeth as they're developing and they fall out, permanent teeth come in. Um, as that enamel forms and mineralizes, it's basically locked in the isotopic signature uh, for that period when, when that child is growing up. And so you get little snapshots of uh, diet and place of origin during infancy, during later childhood, and then uh, adulthood. So you get kind of a timeline of diet and, and um, location by looking at teeth. And with our Cahokia work, uh, we started by analyzing animal teeth. And that's what we base our, what we determine our baseline strontium ratios for. Mm-hmm. And what was really cool about Cahokia is that it tends to have a lower strontium ratio than surrounding regions. So with our people, um, individuals that fall outside of this, this established range of strontium values, uh, we can say that they're not local. And um, so that's, that's what we were able to do with our larger Cahokia sample and with our Mount 72 sample as well. So how are you able to, at what point did you say, okay, we know that it's about a third of the population is immigrants or, or migrating populations from other areas? I imagine that you needed a fairly large sample in order to come to that conclusion. So how many, uh, how many um, burials did you analyze for those purposes? We sampled approximately um, just over 100 individuals from about... 18 different burial locations within Cahokia itself. And so of those, 33% had at least one tooth that uh, was non-local, that indicated they had lived a portion of their life someplace outside of the American bottom. And you could trace where it was? We could not. That's, our, that's the next phase of this, of this project, where it is looking at animal remains from... Um, suspected places of origin, places where we know that Cahokians interacted with. So, uh, you know, our samples range from the Great Lakes region all the way down to the Gulf Coast, and we're trying to build a strontium isoscape that will give us some idea of the variation in strontium isotopes across the mid-continent 
and to try and match some of those um, those values or those those strontium ranges with what we're finding in the people from Cahokia. And what our research is showing us is that there is a lot of overlap. It's going to be very difficult within this region to to say that somebody is from someplace specific. So, um, you know, we know that he's not local to Cahokia, but where is he from? He's probably from someplace to the north of Cahokia, or, you know, we can't, we can't specifically identify, but we can narrow down uh, the number of locations that he may have been from. Does that make, does that make sense? Yes, it does. Eve, uh, let me ask you a question here. Have you worked in other parts of the mid-continent so that you would bring a different perspective to this and, and be able to sort of integrate your kind of research into this general modeling that the Cahokia people were putting together as this uh, very intriguing project uh, developed? Well, actually, um, I've been here at ICAS for... 21 years now, and most of the work I've done since I've been here has been in the American bottom, a large number of our excavations are through the American bottom. But before I started working here, um, I had done excavations in the lower Illinois River Valley at Campsville and in the central Illinois River Valley around Dixon Mounds. So I came to start working on Cahokia kind of after I'd had the experience in these other regions and significantly different in terms of obviously the size, but just the population dynamics, the types of things that are going on in the different regions at the same time. And it's interesting to tie in What's going on in the central Illinois River Valley and the lower river valley with what is going on at Cahokia? How much does Cahokia influence these other areas? So, now, I should most point of my out, recent research right. has been with Cahokia population. So what kind of perspective do you bring to, to that table? I mean, one of the interesting things that you mentioned uh, is that, uh, that these were different populations. Of course, geographically, uh, they're not separated by that much area. So um, how, did this come as a surprise to Cahokia archaeologists who were uh, starting to obviously uh, become into it? in a situation where they could uh, look at the social mobility of these populations with a much broader perspective. I would imagine that uh, some of this work is sort of uh, laid a couple of the old models on their heads a little bit because of this migration. Um, uh, Kristen, do you want to give a, a shot at that one? Uh, actually, let me uh, address some of that in terms of the archaeology. This is Eve again. Um, as far as the idea of mobility at this time with Cahokia, there's always been a discussion about the influence of Cahokia and the development of archaeological sites and innovation in other areas, particularly the Central Illinois River Valley and on up even into Wisconsin with the Ashland area, where you find very distinctive Mississippian ceramics. You start to find 
long-term houses, larger populations, the use of pyramidal mounds. These are all things that appear rather abruptly in these other regions. And mm-hmm. so we knew there is some type of interaction that's going on. Part of that is, at least in these other northern centers they're developing, the idea has always been kind of unidirectional in that Tokians are going up to the Central Valley or they're going to Wisconsin, um, but not so much information on specifically are they coming into Cahokia? You know, who are, what is the constitution of the Cahokian population? Do we find people moving into Cahokia, this big center city, are they coming predominantly from the south? Are they coming from Missouri area? Do we find a lot of people from northern Illinois moving into Cahokia to take advantage of what's going on there? So that's where the strontium information really comes into play. I see, I see. And so it's giving you some more information about the movements back and forth, both in and out of Cahokia. Is that correct? Correct, correct. And so what was the major finding of that? I mean, as you're starting to put all this information together, are you seeing more of an influx or an outgo, or are you able to monitor this very closely with, for example, climate change and reconstructions that you have in terms of settlement patterning and and so forth? Chris? Our research so far has focused primarily on, you know, initially, could we even identify differences within uh-huh. within this population using strontium? And we did. And uh, now in, we've gathered some of the formal data. We're correlating that with mortuary practices uh, and evidence for... Uh, whether, whether they're local or non-local. And, and one of the things that we looked at were, uh, say, the mass burials. One in particular um, is feature 229, which uh, you may remember is this mass burial of men and women. They're very um, right. haphazardly thrown into a large pit. They've been several of those. There's clear evidence of violent death. And it, it was initially interpreted as possibly um, war captives, the execution right. of war captives. Mm-hmm. When we looked at their strontium values, their strontium falls within the local range for Cahokia. And so what does that tell us? Does that tell us that they're local to the region, that they are a subgroup of Cahokia, maybe a, a political or familial group? Um, that was killed, or does it reflect, again, going back to maybe the captives, but uh, a group from outside of Cahokia itself, but from a region similar enough that they would have the same strontium values. And what our animal data tells us is that, um, you know, we might want to be looking at southern Missouri or some of these places where you have overlapping strontium. There are evidence from this group in terms of the data morphology, uh, the work of Andy Thompson, one of our co-authors on this paper, and um, evidence from the strontium in that there's very, very little variation between individuals within this this mass grave that suggests they're all from one place, that they represent a single population. So, um, you know, that's kind of the level at which we're looking at it now is, is teasing apart the specifics 
of the various features. And we'll have to take another break over here, and we'll continue our very, very fascinating discussion on Mound 72, the burial complex at Cahokia, and more generally, the significance of the site in broader perspective. We'll be right back after these words. Don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Joe Schuldenrein here again with uh, a very unique episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We are discussing the very famous archaeological site of Cahokia, perhaps the largest metropolis in prehistoric North America. And uh, we've been joined by uh, two bioarchaeologists, uh, Kristen Hedman and Eve Hargrave, and the director of the Illinois Archaeological uh, Survey, uh, Dr. Tom Emerson. Tom, uh, I just wanted to ask you, as sort of a senior um, scholar of the developments at Cahokia, how these phenomenal bioarchaeological interpretations at Mount 72 and perhaps elsewhere have reframed some of the ideas that were held, say, in the, by, in the mid-70s about the site and about social structure and mobility and uh, settlement and climate, even, if you will, uh, at Cahokia. What can you tell us in that sense? Yeah, I think that, you know, what we've been working on at Cahokia is like, we've kind of eschewed the, the 
this broad theoretical kind of perspective, and we're actually working on hardcore facts and details. And as those begin to come together, you start adding them up, and they really change your vision of Cahokia. And the very first thing, of course, is that Cahokia and really native archaeology in this country tends by the, the general public um, and by some archaeologists to be almost, it's almost flat, in effect. It's, it's not peopled by real people. We talk in general trends. We don't think about you know, people as agents, as people as actually actions and whose actions make a difference in the past. And so as we begin to understand, you know, a simple thing like immigration, well, if in the past interpreting the social structure of Cahokia, people have abstracted from from tribal groups like the Osage or some of the groups in the southeast, and you go, you know, think about that for a minute. You're taking... A, a political model based upon a couple thousand people in the 1800s, and you're extrapolating it back to what is now known to be a city of 20 to 30,000 people in the past. It's like, you need to rethink that. And so mm-hmm. part of our, our shift has been starting to think about, like, okay, let's look at other cities. What kind of events happen in other cities? And so, you know, when you, when you look at that perspective and you go back and you come to Cahokia, you go, well, basically city making is generative. You know, cities make change. And they make change because, of course, you're articulating all of these different groups, different cultures. I mean, we're talking about probably people who are linguistically different. And all of these people are now brought together. Also, and so in order to make that society work, what you've got to do is you've got to come up with new rules. It's a new game. And that is going to require some innovative thinking on the parts of archaeologists. I mean, it, it is a challenge to really think, you know, because we are very used to taking models from the ethnographic presence around us and simply ad living them into the past. Tokyo, I don't think that's going to work. And I think that's going to. That's going to affect a lot of people in terms of how they think and, and how they interpret this. Um, so, it, um, and it's the other thing that's happening, I think, is that we, as we pick out kind of details, it's, well, there's, there's a, a bunch of strange events. So, the, the trade, Koki as a trade center, that concept is diminishing now as we get more and more evidence. And we realize that. For the Cahokians, the Ozarks were their Walmart. And, you know, we're talking about <laughs> areas within 100 miles of Cahokia. It doesn't mean right. they don't have rare and exotic things, but really the everyday items are coming from close by. But they do have these long-distance contacts. And one of the fascinating things that we've done recently is we did some residue analysis on the inside of some special vessels at Cahokia. We had kind of a clue that these were used to make medicines. Well, it turns out that as a result of that, we could demonstrate they were using black drink, which was a historically known um, tea substance in the Southeast that was very important, um, both ceremonially and in terms of political um, you know, activities. So this, this was a major part of the Southeast. Well, the fascinating thing about that is it's made from Ilex vomitoria. And Ilex vomitoria 
the closest place it grows naturally is in southern Oklahoma. So you're talking about Pachacokia, a major substance that's part of their probably symbolism and part of their religious activities depends upon a leaf that has to be brought from three to 400 miles away. I mean, this mm. is kind of, kind of like the British and tea. Um, you know, you got this, and you go, like, just think about what that means in terms of an organizational structure. This is not the simple local chiefdom model that people have, have imposed on it. So I think that, you know, again, everything we know about Cahokia now, the new findings, the we didn't really talk much about a simple thing like diet, but what we found uh, looking at the isotopes in which you can tell the consumption of maize, that actually maize consumption is really late. It's maybe in the 900s, and it actually looks like it comes in suddenly and skyrockets, which is totally different from the vision we've had in the past about this slow progression. And so what you get at early Cahokia is you get people that virtually are eating no maize, the people who are, have heavy diets. All of these kind of things, you know, they kind of break the stereotypes. They, they break down the past as this kind of undifferentiated, homogenized, you know, vision that we have. And so Cahokia now, when you really think about it big time, you got to think this is a place that's fluid, it's heterogeneous. It really is a city and think about your visions of other cities as places of dynamic change and cultural innovation. And that's what the new Cahokia is all about. So it's in some ways, it's really sort of a revolution, not only in uh, traditional modeling, but just in terms of understanding dy- dynamics, demographics, and uh, yes. really traditional organizational models that we've had of uh, how complex societies evolve and how they interact. So this is, yeah. this is pretty much questioning the underpinnings of a lot of uh, things that we learned when we were in school, yeah. actually. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah, I don't want to mention how long ago that was. Uh, but no, you don't. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, lately I've been thinking it's like Cahokia is to, you know, North America like Teotihuacan was to Mexico. It's a totally unique, almost unexplicable event that really That's... then probably has impacts through hundreds of years and across thousands of miles. I wanted to ask uh, Kristen, actually, and Eve, uh, we didn't get into this whole question of pathologies and what you're finding out about uh, disease and uh, uh, possibly even physical injuries that uh, we're now learning in the populations that that died or or perished in in Cahokia. Uh, Kristen, you want to start with that a little bit? Tell us a little bit about that. Um, we haven't looked too closely at, at Mount 72 for disease and injury, uh, but what we're finding in Cahokia more broadly is, is greater evidence for pathology and trauma than we had expected before, than we had seen before. Um, some of this uh, information is coming from the new excavations at East St. Louis, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, within Cahokia itself, there are differences in health between different uh, mortuary contexts. So the, there are mass burials that include primarily young women 
and some of these um, look to be particularly healthy. You don't see much evidence of infection uh, or much evidence of caries, suggesting that they had an adequate diet and were um, generally healthy. And you compare that to, say, that that mass burial of um, very violently killed individuals where we do find evidence of trauma, again, um, cut marks and fractured heads and decapitation and that kind of thing. Um, Eve, has anything to add to that? Well, one of the things about Cahokia that has always struck Chris and I over the decades we've worked together on this is the limited evidence we have for violent death outside of Mount 72. And compared to the central Illinois River Valley where there's warfare going on from 1100 to 1350, you know, and lots of evidence of people dying violently, clearly conflict between different social groups. We just don't see that kind of evidence much in the American bottom region outside of Mount 72. So we have a few cases where we find some scalping, uh, some uh, evidence for blunt force trauma that would suggest violent death. But in the bigger scheme of things, it's really relatively rare. Would you say that that had something to do with the very sort of, uh, well, for lack of a better comparative word, the urban organization of that area? I think to some extent, certainly early on, it does. Um, You know, people are coming voluntarily to Cahokia, and they are integrating themselves into the Cahokian world, if you will. Um, And it's just so big. You know, I Mm -hmm. think it's not going to necessarily, people aren't going to send war parties against Cahokia or anything like that. Um, To the best of my knowledge, that seems to be the best explanation. Maybe Tom can add to that. Well, a a colleague of ours... um Tim Pox that likes to talk about a Pox Cahokia, just like there was a Pox Romana. Right. Same concept of, like, if you are the biggest group around. So when when Cahokia has got 20,000, 30,000 people, the next largest size villages have maybe 200. It's like they are unique. So we kind of almost looking at Mount 72, you know, we almost kind of walked away with this impression like, man, the biggest danger to Cahokians is not outsiders, it's other Cahokians. It's, right. it's maybe, you know, from this effect that if you're one of the uh, several hundred young women who are being sacrificed, it's like, there's the danger. It, it, it's not from, uh, you know, the village a uh, hundred miles away. So it, it does give you a, a vision of, a fairly tightly organized kind of pattern of social control. And I think that you can project for Cahokia. Interesting. Interesting. What about, what about after Cahokia? What do we know? What is, uh, what is even some of the mortuary information tell us about the Cahokia collapse? And are we any closer to understanding sort of the fragmentation of the site over time? Tom? Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, Chris and I just put together a paper on that recently because one of the things we were, we were in a conference in which everyone was saying it was this uh, 
this new concept of resilience. So everybody's talking about societies as being resilient because it's not polite to say they failed. So (laughs) unfortunately, we were the kind of the odd man out because we pulled together all the information on climate deterioration, on health, on violence. And you look at Cahokia and you go, they're not really being very heavily affected by any of these things. And so in the end, we kind of walked away saying, you know, uh, I think we titled the paper something like The Danger of Diversity, that the biggest danger to Cahokia is that it's made up of all these fragmented groups that it is key that they be held together. And so you get the impression that in, you know, kind of social sociology terms, it's like a breaking up of the social contract, that that's more likely what happens to Cahokia, because it happens fairly rapidly. And big pieces of Cahokia branch off and go away. Now, trying to trace those people has been extremely difficult. You know, we get hints that they've spread out literally across the eastern United States. But um, but Cahokia really is, if you want to think about a if you think of the Cahokia polity as the, the goal, then Cahokia is a failed society because by 1300, you've got an abandoned landscape. And you have people then moving down from the north who are isolated farmers or sometimes coming in from Missouri. And it's like they're almost coming into a, you know, a wilderness that has been depopulated for probably multiple generations by the time they come in the late 1300s. So it it is a total collapse. The other interesting thing about Cahokia and the Cahokian collapse is it doesn't show up in native mythology. You know, this is different than Chaco. Chaco, there are myths about that you can trace back to Chaco and, you know, as a, compo- as a comparable complex society about the same time period. That doesn't happen here. Nobody, none of the native groups have myths about the time they lived in a place where, you know, people were sacrificed or in a place that where there were hundreds of mounds or there were cities, the you know, this of a great size. I mean, that just doesn't exist. So it's almost like when people left, they did a concerted effort to forget, not to remember. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to close it down. And I just want to thank my guests, Tom Emerson, uh, Eve Hargrave, and Chris Hedman for spending this lovely hour with us and showing us how much recent uh, technological advances and anthropological advances are improving our understanding of early societies and early urban life in the Midwestern United States. Thank you so much for participating in the program. All of you appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. And on that note, we will say a good evening, and we will be back again next week with another episode of Indiana Jones-Smith Reality and 21st Century Archaeology. See you next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 